0: Welcome to Design Is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our lives and our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design, because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we are talking about restaurant design and how designers and chefs collaborate to make a space tell a story about food and atmosphere. Joining us today as our guest co-host is Greg Blyer, the founding principal of Studio Unlimited, an award-winning design firm whose work includes restaurants like Bavel, Odium, and Bestia. And later on in the show, we'll have Chef Sang Yoon, who is the chef and proprietor of Father's Office, Luke Shan Restaurant, and the chef and partner of Two Birds, One Stone in St. Helena, California. But before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum check out our We Design Exhibition conversation cards. These incredibly well-designed cards bring our We Design Exhibition to your home. We Design is an exhibition that we put together that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck includes stories from creatives in a variety of design industries, and it includes statistics and topics of discussion around diversity and equity in design. The deck can be used alone or with friends. Hey, you can even use it over Zoom. Why not? And it's available to order now on designmuseumeverywhere.org. And with that, on to this week's topic, restaurant design. I was thinking back a few years ago, myself and the team here at the Design Museum paired up with seven restaurants in downtown Boston and seven design firms for an exhibition we called Design for Dining. Each firm created a table vignette of sorts for the restaurant. So I don't know how we got the restaurants to agree to this, but they cleared out part of their restaurant and the design team recreated a new experience. So diners were able to make reservations at these special tables, and experience how design can enhance the dining experience. So for this episode, we will learn about how designers and chefs collaborate to bring a story that a diner can experience through food and space. I'm very excited to chat with our guest co-host this week on how he uses design in dining. I'm joined by Greg Blyer from Studio Unlimited. Before founding Studio Unlimited, Greg fell in love with the restaurant world while earning his bachelor's at the University of Pittsburgh And he was working at a restaurant. He worked and moved on to study interior design at the University of Cincinnati, which led him to a few design firms in LA. And in 2009, he founded Studio Unlimited, where he went back to his roots and could focus on hospitality design with a specialization in restaurants. In 2018, he and his team won Eater's Restaurant Design of the Year for their work on Bavel, which challenged the design conventions of most Middle Eastern restaurants. Greg's designs create unique, functional, and inviting hospitality spaces. Greg! Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Sam.
0: In our research, we saw you've said that telling the story of the brand or of the chef is at the forefront of your work. And so I'd love to just get into like what's your research process like when you're kicking off a project?
1: Yeah, I mean, it varies, you know, cuz not it's not always a chef-driven concept. I put like the kind of old-school interest in programming And so part of that is really kind of understanding the process of the chef or the concept or the approach to the concept, because, you know, our feeling, at least in my office, is we are not designing our own museum. We are designing a restaurant or somebody else's dream, essentially. Our job is to kind of interpret that and kind of maximize that. I put a lot of emphasis on function, so um, you know we have a fairly nerdy uh, program. Can you dive into that for people who don't know, like what a program is? Yeah, almost like a guidebook, a roadmap. I call it for like there's two roadmaps for a project. One is your program, and another is your concept. How the spaces are used, getting into specifics, break down a space into components, and then even further, what are those components and what makes up those components. So, you know, in a restaurant, there's going to be a lot of discussion about how the food comes out and what is at that location in terms of, you know, storage, uh, in terms of plateware, in terms of heat lamps, in terms of types of material that are appropriate for that use. Uh, you know, like what areas need to be near a daylighted space, those types of details, uh, like, you know, for a host down, you have your electrical requirements, your data requirements, like all that jazz. Um, does it need to be mobile? Is it fixed? Some of it is aesthetic and some of it is technical. So we would talk about, you know, at a bar, does the person want a back on the barstool? Do they want a fixed bar stool? Do they want you know those types of details?
0: What else do you think about when working with a chef? Because I got to imagine you know a chef, especially a chef-driven concept, they've got ideas for the space, they've got a vision. But how do you kind of blend their vision for the actual space with your
1: you know design expertise? The most important thing is just to spend enough time with them, mm, mm-hmm. if we can, uh, you know. And that's that's the the tricky thing as we get bigger and we take on more projects you know and it it was easy when i was just more or less working on my own or working with a smaller staff of two when i worked on bestia here in los angeles which you know just you know, happened to become a pretty well-known restaurant here and probably across the country. You know, I was pretty intimately involved with both chefs on the project, you know, going to their home. They were making bread in this like single, like, you know, one bedroom apartment and this tiny, you know, while they were like testing things out, I remember I was literally coming home, parking my car in my garage and she called me and said, what are you doing right now? And I was like, you know, I just got home and she goes, you need to get your ass over here uh, and try these donuts. And, um, of course I was like, I will do that. And she, you know, so I go over there, tiny, again, like their small apartment, I think they had a, uh, an electric stove that looked like it was from the (laughs) seventies. And she was doing these kind of, um, stovetop donuts. And at that point, her husband, who is the chef of the restaurant as well, just tweaked her recipe and added chestnut flour to these donuts. And she's like, you have to try these They're amazing, you know, and did it. And of course she was right. Um, (laughs) I think those are still on the menu today. So it's like moments like that, where you start to really get into the, uh, like understanding the experience, um, like kind of their process of creation. I think it's great to try their food and understand their approach. I mean, even the chefs that don't have maybe the visual clarity in terms of what they want, they are good at their job, presumably, and they, they definitely have a point of view when it comes to their food. And, um, you know, just going back to Bestia, because I always kind of hang my hat on that as a shining example of a restaurant that clicks on all cylinders is, you know, I mean, that place opened, right place, right time, but design, quality of food, staff, uh, music, all of it uh, just works so perfectly there. And, you know, from the moment they open till now, I mean, till right before the pandemic anyway, you know, still a very difficult res- reservation almost eight years on. So it's pretty remarkable to see it when it really, really clicks, but it's really that, you know, their intention and some of them have a broader view of, like I said, like from service to the type of music, to the attitude or how they train their staff, how they speak to their staff, all of those things. Can you share another
0: favorite project, like kind of this is an audio format, but like, paint a picture for us in terms of like
1: what it's like to be there. Well, I'll jump actually to the same client's second project, which is Bavel, which we talked about earlier. So, you know, Bavel is kind of like that second album. You know, you had a hit <laughs> with the first one, and it was like recorded in your garage, and you know, on a very low budget. And so, this is like you know, you've been touring, and you've got all the royalties <laughs> and whatnot coming in. So this was a much bigger more more difficult nut to crack so to speak i see much bigger job uh it was in yet another kind of like a warehouse space but in this case there was nothing like nothing for us to tap into not nearly enough electrical no gas you know none of these things it was kind of a standalone building that was kind of not famous at all that was just an empty empty shell and so for us you know, we saw a lot of opportunity because it was it was a beautiful, simple brick building built in the '60s. I want to say '50s or '60s. It was elevated, so the you have to actually go above grade about 42 inches or so to get into the restaurant. It had a kind of beautiful, simple storefront, like a steel, like warehouse, typical warehouse storefront from that era. And some clear stories. But as luck would have it, the, the building actually situated where it was facing northeast or kind of north, like dead north. And with the amount of sun, especially in this downtown like kind of arts district of LA area where it's completely exposed, it does get sweltering hot down there in the summer. You know, that was kind of a blessing where, you know, we didn't have to worry about heat gain direct, you know, coming in from windows and so forth. So one of the first things that we did was to pop up these sawtooth skylights to allow these lights coming down from the heavens, so to speak, you know, made it really really saying because you know bevel means uh babel in israeli so we basically took that almost word for word but we you know drew some inspiration from the hanging gardens of babylon that's what bevel is It's you know primary focus is these kind of plants at this raceway of plants that hang uh over the dining room and drape down uh their pothos and they drape like six feet down and at their best, they can tickle your head or drip water on you on occasion, <laughs> but they are a kind of a living, breathing aspect of that restaurant. The lighting in that space, in particular, was a lot about daylighting, but then also allowing the space to transform as it goes from day to night. So it actually is a much, much different space from day to night. Feels very washed out. It's, it's the antithesis of their previous restaurant, which is Bestia. The staff of both restaurants affectionately call Bestia the Beast, which is what it means in Italian, and the other one, Beauty. So when it first opened, some of the people at Bestia were jealous because it was just this light, airy version the of Beauty. <laughs> yeah. That you know allowed us to light this plant life, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in a way. So it was allows us, allowed us some, some dramatic lighting there. I mean, it, in that restaurant, it's funny because as much as we love pendants and we love sconces and we love all those decorative lights, I have a pet peeve. About putting too many decorative fixtures in the space, and in fact, those who know me well, when I when we go to dinner, if there's too many, we play count the fixture types, <laughs> um, and it's a it's a fun game actually in certain spaces <laughs> when you can count up <laughs> to like twenty in a room, and it's pretty remarkable. But yeah, we have a lighting designer on staff
2: who mm, focuses cool. mainly
1: on the output and the experience of lighting in this space. You know, we really only had, I think. In the main space you know we have one pendant over these booths by the window and another one and another series of these moroccan sconces and there aren't that many of them and everything else is in like direct architectural lighting in the space and it's all about highlighting the textures and the you know texture of the greenery the textures of the brick walls that are there under lighting the bar, up lighting the back bar, and just kind of hitting all these focal points like the, I mean, we, we clad the the kitchen hood with brass. And so that's up lit. So we try to create a lot of layers through lights in the space, hmm. you know, uh, and, and then a little bit of sparkle with some of the pendants in the space as well.
0: Thanks for laying that all out. That, that's really helpful. Appreciate it. Listeners, if you'd like to see more of Greg's work, check out studiounlimited.com, that's studio, U-N-L-T-D.com. And Greg, stick around, and we'll bring Chef Sang Yoon into the conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's the museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month, and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events discounts and our Design Museum Magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum Magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. Okay, we're back, and we're joined by our special guest, Chef Sang Yoon. For his first restaurant, Chef Sang renovated his favorite local dive bar called Father's Office, which became famous for its office burger and was named one of the best burgers in the world by Esquire. He studied psychology at Boston University and UCLA before returning to the kitchen to work at Chinois on Main with Chef Wolfgang Puck. Now, he leads three kitchens of his own. He is a chef and proprietor at Father's Office, Lukshan Restaurant, and a chef and partner of Two Birds, One Stone in St. Helena, California. And he is currently leading the rebirth of Helms Bakery Cafe alongside Greg Blyer. Chef Sang has been called the godfather of Los Angeles Pubs. Chef, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm excited to chat with you and chat with you both since you're collaborating. To start off, I'd love to learn what inspired you to become a chef.
2: Uh, probably necessity. Uh, my parents left me alone a lot as a kid. I traveled a lot with them. We immigrated to from South Korea to the United States when I was just a baby, so I had two parents with you know huge careers so they were all over the world and i got to tag along and uh, i got to eat in a lot of really nice restaurants uh probably restaurants i didn't belong in these aren't restaurants that you know for children we never i never saw like the inside of a chuck e cheese or anything like that so i got exposed to very adult environments mm. very young and in combination of growing up you know they weren't home a lot so you, you either have to figure out how to cook something or, you know you're eating a lot of takeout a lot of fast food i think those two things contributed
0: yeah I love that. As we were talking about doing this episode, I kept thinking of like a chef as like a food designer, right? So I wonder if you could share some of like your creative process when you're thinking about a particular dish or a menu, like do you iterate, prototype, like what does that look like?
2: Well, I'm one of the few people that I'm, I am have the luxury of having an actual test kitchen. Mm, uh, and nice. probably the thing I'm best known is uh, over tinkering, uh, maybe too much analysis, paralysis. I'm kind of the opposite of what a lot of people think of chefs; these very sort of like off-the-cuff, creative people. I'm much more of a contemplative guy, and which is why when I walk to a farmer's market, it's paralyzing. It's not inspiring. It's just it's just too much input. I kind of need that. I, I've discovered throughout you know in my career, I was like, well, I kind of need that space to. It's almost like write music in a way. You can't just come up with a song and play it and then record it and then put it on the market. No, you can't do that. And you've got to. Play it and play it again and play it again. Um, so that's kind of how I design, and that's my process. Right or wrong, I make a lot of mistakes. Uh, you know, just no one sees them.
0: Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about you know for our listeners who might not know like what a test kitchen is? Like how does that work in your process?
2: Well, a test kitchen is just it's a kitchen without a dining room. And I'm lucky enough where I have a you know a a, a room full of toys, a, a full commercial kitchen, able to do anything that a rest you know any of our restaurants can do. Yeah, so we have exactly everything. So it's not just like a house kitchen, but it's like, yeah, yeah, so we can replicate anything. And that's where we design the process uh, of actually making a dish. Because when people think of cooking, they think of it as this very spur of the moment thing, something that happened once. And what people have to remember is that uh, restaurants are factories. And we have to make whatever the dish is, whatever the meal is, we have to replicate this literally dozens, if not hundreds of times a day. So not only are we creating the final product, we're creating the process to get that dish mm. consistently each and every time without flaw. So the test kitchen is there to kind of allow us to practice those steps like rehearsal, rehearsing a dance uh, and making sure all of the players are in sync. And that's to the benefit of the guests, because we get to do that without having to sh- you know, kind of mess up in front of you. So by the time we're serving you, we look like we've done this a thousand times. Because we probably have. Because yeah, you, you have. <laughs> yeah. I love that process design. That that's so cool. I wanted to hear more about the
0: process of transforming father's office, right? So how did you take sort of like the bones of a space? How did you make it your own through design?
2: Well, it's a teeny space, it's really narrow, it's just You know i was a customer there in the 90s since i was old enough to drink and i didn't really do much i just kind of cleaned it up the space reminded me of southern spain where the whole tapas culture was born and it had sort of this kind of i don't know a lot of people think it looks very east coast i think it looks like like a seaside you know european cafe it didn't have the same food or drink so how much i spent 21 years ago to sort of make father's office my own is, is like less than what one bathroom costs to build today. <laughs> so it wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't like, hey, I've got millions of dollars. I'm just gonna pump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of how I found it, just cleaner. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. It's like, what did you do to the place? Like I swept. Yeah. <laughs> and I got rid of the old beer smell. Yeah. It was really um, it wasn't until 2008, when the second Bowles office opened, that I even spoke with the designer, that I even had you know the, enough money to even consider saying, "Wow, I have an empty space. That I can you know." What can we do here? Yeah, what can you do? And then we just opened another one last year. So um, no, the first one was definitely not a design exercise. It was just more like, "This is what you got. Make lemonade." I certainly wouldn't have designed it this way if, <laughs> if, if it was a blank slate. Yeah, but yeah. look, it's worked out. So
0: yeah, I say the character is there. For sure. I read that the office burger is famous for its no condiment rule.
2: What is the condiment of a restaurant space that we can get rid of? You mean in the physical restaurant? Yeah. The design, the physical space? The physical space. I often see restaurants, uh, newer restaurants, built with materials that clearly cannot withstand heavy use. And sometimes I'm perplexed by the material, like the physical finish choices sometimes. And you go to a restaurant maybe six months, a year after it's opened and you can tell that, wow, at this point, this shouldn't look this bad. And you often ask like, well, you know, someone spent money and time and there was a conversation about this and you can tell that there was intention to this and you wonder, do they not know that this thing's going to be touched by like 100 (laughs) people a day? (laughs) So, you know, like non, I guess non-durable or non-well-wearing materials being Mm -hmm. used just sounds like... It's like someone thought it looked cool, but they they weren't really considering the use or the environment Mm -hmm. that it was in.
1: Yeah. Does that resonate with you, Greg? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we've been on both sides of that coin where we try to, you know, do different things and doesn't always lead us to the most durable of materials. So we've had to kind of, you know, you pick your battles as to where, like, if it's a non durable material, where is it being placed? Right, so you have to be intentional about all of that. But yes, you know, I I think we've learned probably some hard lessons over the years about that.
2: I I became fascinated because um, I'm I'm uh, not—I hate swimming in water, so I I don't like boats. So, but I got to go on a couple of really nice boats, and what I've noticed is that there's such this crazy level of um, intentional design for like marine use, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and you're like, wow, that's so cool. This entire industry has their proprietary materials used to like withstand like getting wet, salt and all this stuff. And you're like, okay, so <laughs> I'm not crazy either. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do that. But in restaurants,
1: yeah. it can be done. It can
2: be done. You can actually create things that are attractive, but purposeful. And like, yeah, so I, I look at that for inspiration sometimes.
0: What are some of your favorite spaces? Can you describe like what makes a well-designed restaurant to you?
2: I'm not going to have the answer anyone likes, but as fussy as I am about designing my own spaces and as opinionated as I am, for me as a diner, I don't really want to notice the space. I prefer an unobtrusive environment where I don't walk in and go, what the hell is that thing? I almost want it to fade away and I just want it to be kind of background, almost like the music in a way where like you don't want to hear EDM while you're eating. You know, sometimes it's like the design can be obtrusive just like the way poorly chosen music can really be disruptive to your dining experience. And most of the restaurants I frequent, you know, I like a lot of, a lot of like ethnic hole in the wall places where design clearly wasn't there, you know, they weren't leading with that. They don't have the budget for it. I'm much more driven by the food itself. And I think if the food is good, I pay less attention. It's when I become bored with the food or if I kind of dis, you know, kind of disengage, I start looking around and then I start noticing things. I start looking up, I start looking and then you're kind of like, well, why did they do that? <laughs> <laughs> On the positive side of it is I like when a restaurant is used, you can tell that the restaurant is being used. The specific things where they're like smartly located and you can see that the staff is actually working as it's designed, sort of like how an airplane is, like everything has a home, everything has to fit in this and you can't just leave something laying out. And when I see a restaurant kind of being haphazardly used where things are not placed, you can tell like a home wasn't made for this. When you see that there is thoughtful detail throughout and the use connects to the design, then you go, okay, there's some beauty about that so that it, it it makes it look like, well, it was used. It is. It was designed with use in mind, uh, as opposed to like, they never thought about this. And here they're having to kind of Mickey Mouse something. And
0: yeah, they're trying to figure it out. Yeah. yeah that, I saw an interview you did with Rolling Stone and you said something like working in a restaurant is like a contact sport. And I wonder, <laughs> have you seen good design, like make spaces easier to have that utility and that function?
2: Oh, or yeah, maybe, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, hundred percent. I mean, where you where where something lives, like a straw, you know, or a, you know, a, you know, how you, how many steps it takes to, you know, make a cocktail or or, or create a dish, um, and the amount of inches that something is in relation to each other makes a huge difference in how many times a human being has to move or cross over, which is why the space needs to be conducive to the act, the process that you're conducting, uh, and it can't create an impediment to it, and that's sometimes, you know, when we speak with designers, it's not just about how it looks or how it photographs, but like we have to physically work here. And I have that conversation all the time. Like I have to work here.
0: Yeah. This is my workplace.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I, it has to function in a certain way that's non-negotiable. It's, it's best when design encourages that as opposed to stand in its way. And I've seen both. I but more often I see restaurant spaces that there's issue. You can tell that there's issues but you know, you don't always want to blame the designer because sometimes the space, you know, you rent a space and you're like, I like the space but it's got these issues and you just have to work around them. So, you know, I have restaurants that personally that work really well and I have ones that don't and it's not always the designer's fault. It's just these are the challenges the space gave us. Sometimes the designer's job, I think their, their biggest job is to kind of overcome challenging spaces, uh, difficult spaces. I think sometimes really talented people can say, well, this is a terrible space. And then they produce a really beautiful product that's also very functional.
1: Well, you're kind of well-known, like even before I met you, your reputation of having a very highly functioning kitchen, you know, that your kitchens, when you've been able to design them, specifically, I think either the Lakshan kitchen or the father's office in Culver City, it was told to me that it was like, you know, the best kitchen you could ever hope to work in so i think you know that would be kind of potentially interesting to hear about your process in working with kitchen designers because intentional is a word that you use often i would imagine you know usually you're used to working in maybe spaces that have to be smaller don't have the footprint to really achieve what needs to be done you have to use the height you have to use every square inch of the kind of Uh, you know, cubic inch of the space. So how do you go about that?
2: Well, I just, I'm in love with efficiency uh, and we're intrinsically in a very inefficient business, Um, you know, making, you know, having a small number of people produce food for a large number of people, you know, in a short amount of time, all of this is, it's, you know, it sounds like a circus, like, I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. Without thoughtful, efficient processes, a lot of things can go wrong. A lot of mistakes can happen. So, there's a lot of blind spots that can, that can happen. So, I try to remember that a restaurant is really a factory with a hospitality front end attached to it. But it, it it's really just, it needs to be conducive to repetition that's why kind of this misconception that kitchens are you know places of creativity and it's like well they're not they're they're we don't we create very infrequently and but we serve the same dish over and over and over again you know that's what the test kitchen's for the test kitchen's just like a separate factory that i get to like you know try to go write music in and i and i just have the tools or the instruments that i use in the factory to play with but other than that yeah i mean as long as the designer understands it. We are, in fact, building a factory. Then as long as that's that agreement, then you're good. That's 90% of the work.
0: Let's get into this project you're working on together, the Helms Bakery Cafe. So maybe Chef saying if you can give us like the kind of the context around this, right? Because this was a, a truck bakery and now you're kind of reimagining it, rebirthing it. Um, so tell us sort of the background and then I'd love to get into um, your and Greg's collaboration.
2: Yeah, so the Helms Bakery in Culver City was um, the building is historic where a couple of my restaurants already are. Um, and it's very well known as a furniture, a home furnishings district. The bakery is open from the early 1930s till 1969. And basically the business model was to deliver via these cool little trucks and they would drive through neighborhoods and the kids would run out. It's basically like an ice cream truck, except with donuts and cream puffs. And anyone who grew up in LA who was of a certain age, everyone has some a fond memory of, I remember the the truck would come down the street and we'd all come running out. Ironically, now everything's delivered. So uh, <laughs> but again, so, yes, yeah, weird. But we're not gonna obviously have that model. The the supermarket and things like Wonder Bread and Vandy you know, like the availability of baked goods in supermarkets kind of took, you know, got you know, kind of killed off businesses like that. So our current interpretation and iteration is, you know, we want to bring back the Helms Bakery, the name here at its ancestral home but we want to make a retail space and we want to have a bakery. Um, It's not a time capsule homage to the past. It's very much something contemporary. We want to have kind of the spirit of what it was and kind of pretend like, well, how would it have evolved if it never closed? Uh, We want to add savory elements and not just pastries and sweets, uh, but we want to have takeout food. Uh, We want to have um, some thoughtful nice you know retail items that you know for baking for cooking um we want to be kind of like a gourmet market but again a very like open works you can see the whole thing so you feel like you walked into a factory and everything looks and smells delicious and kind of like the process is what's the most inviting when i, I always say the best sales pitch for a chocolate chip cookie is the smell of a chocolate chip cookie That's coming right. out of an oven there's no better i don't have to sell you on it i just yeah. here you just smell it and it create, it creates its own want, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, we, we kind of want it just to just create a place where we work all day, um, unlike a lot of bakeries that just bake kind of in the wee hours of the morning. And then you come in and you see these beautiful cases filled with the finished product. Our principle is that, you know, anytime you come in, there's something always in the process of being made, just coming out of an oven. So, um, you always have that fresh surprise, like, oh, the, these pies, these blueberry pies are just coming out now. And you're, there's always some moment to capture. And I think that's really fun. That's like a kid coming home and you smell a pie baking and everyone gets excited. And I kind of want that, you know, in a retail space.
0: Oh, that sounds so cool. But so, great question for you, like, how did Chef approach you for this? And, you know, what did you think about it? And like, what was your first steps in terms of like trying to translate that into the space design?
1: uh saying as a beautiful partnership with the owners of the Helms campus because it's a series of buildings there um that kind of sprung up over the course of um you know Helms' uh rise, uh no pun intended. So I think they might have reached out to me, but you know, super excited about it because of as Sang mentioned it, to me there's not Many heritage rounds, like there's not often you get a chance to sink your teeth into a heritage brand, and Helms, mainly because of its giant sign that is on top of the building, everybody of every age in the city of Los Angeles who lived here before, left you know whatever, or visited knows this place, so it is one of these very, very unique opportunities, I think you know for saying, and you know my firm and you know, to be able to rebirth this brand, and so obviously that was very exciting. What's interesting is, you know, and 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 going back to Sang's initial comments about what he looks for when he's out to eat, and, you know, I think that's that's probably a fairly typical experience, right? I mean, we always joke when people are like, you know, what about the ceilings? And I'm like, well, if somebody's looking at your ceilings, you're clearly doing something wrong. The food experience, the re- in this case, I mean, this is a departure for saying because, you know, he's doing a bakery. It's a massive baking uh, facility. He's got uh, a commissary kitchen. He's got a patisserie. He's got a coffee counter. He's got retail. He's got a sidecar cafe, Um, you know, like kind of diner. So this this is a pretty massive undertaking and so super exciting. But I think the way that we approached it is making the design kind of support what they're doing. Um, without overstepping the bounds, at least in the market space. I think we kind of went a little off the rails in the in the cafe, but that was, you know, by design, we wanted it to be a very, very different space. So it's it's kind of got this connectivity to the market, this this small diner, but it's got the visibility into the space. So, but but it is its own kind of sphere of operation generally. The space is bright. It's light. It you know it makes use of skylights in the, that are existing in the space and relocating them. So it 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 takes you know it's in a um, a bow truss uh, structure building that's open to some degree. Um, so we're kind of taking advantage of the height. We're taking advantage of as much of the natural daylight that we can pull in from the perimeter. We made a few moves when we first started just from a planning perspective to allow for a much larger kind of entry and focus on this kind of um, portal if you will into the space that kind of creates a little outdoor uh, seating area that you know is covered and then spills out into an open-air patio so there's going to be a lot i think for people to experience inside but then as well uh, be able to kind of hang out and enjoy some food outside or, you know, wine or whatever it is. That was kind of our approach, you know, kind of keep things, um, for the most part, minimal in terms of color usage. There is color in the space, but it's kind of minimally employed. And then, um, we use a lot of, we love natural materials, uh, saying likes natural materials. So we definitely have focused a lot on, you know, glass and wood and, uh, steel and stone, um, and tile in this case. So.
0: I like that, yeah, that's cool, that's cool. We're in this unprecedented time for restaurants, right? They're, you know, really struggling. I think in the last week, yeah, two of my favorites in Boston are closing for good. So I'm curious, like, the outlook in your minds, like, what are you worried about? but also, like, what are you excited about?
1: I think if anything, I'm worried just, just about getting people open and open responsibly and safely. Last year was challenging for so many people, But obviously, and well-documented, the restaurant industry, especially here in California, just got really hit hard. I mean, we still don't have any indoor dining here. It's been a challenge, I think, you know, and for operators like Sang, you know, he's got an obligation to his staff and, you know, or sometimes business partners, et cetera, you know, to keep people safe, but also, you know, still eke out a living, um, and, as we discussed earlier it's it 's not the easiest profession to eat out a living in and you know I mean the fact that you know it 's a testament to Sang's vision and ability that he 's you know been able to open multiple restaurants and different styles of restaurants and be in a position to even take on such a monster like Helms, which is pretty fantastic but you know we 've had a great number of restaurants here close um, uh, different types i mean, I think it hit the kind of mom and pop, you know, smaller restaurants, the hardest. But I, I think it's been interesting for us because we've had to think about design and the approach to what it will mean. And I think there's a lot of questions. I mean, I think there needs to be studies or, you know, we we have to look at data or at least observe what's going on. I mean, there's, there's obviously people here when they're chomping at the bit to go do stuff. They're chomping at the bit to go out and eat. I mean... Uh, You know, I've been seeing lines ever since they reopened outdoor dining here. I mean, it's the lines are, they're just very, very, they're eager. And so, so I think that that is encouraging. I mean, I think people do want to get out, Um, you know, not everybody. And, and, and the thing is like, we have to accept that not everybody's going to be ready, you know, and, but we have to be ready for those that will be and potentially ready for those that might take their time and maybe create different experiences, in restaurants like Sang had mentioned before about the open kitchen or and things like that like maybe there's more you know we go back to that kind of irish pub snug idea and like there are like more individual nooks and crannies to sit in and people feel secure um in some areas and so forth but um yeah so there's a lot to consider i think with design but I'm excited about the future of the the industry because there's so much creativity. There's so many people that pivoted and did some really creative, ex- inspiring things um, in the food industry to keep afloat. So I wonder also if you know we'll continue to see that kind of ingenuity and innovation come into the space, which I think is also quite exciting. Yeah,
0: that's great. Chef, any things you're excited for during this wild time that hopefully will end soon?
2: My general feeling has, you know, evolved to the basically, you know, people want to ask about ghost kitchens and are we just going to eat out of cardboard boxes for the rest of our lives? And what is the future of the restaurant industry? And my general feeling is the restaurant industry is not going anywhere, that we are as creatures, we are social, we want to be together, we want to celebrate. Restaurants serve as a backdrop to almost Every seminal moment in your life, your graduation, your first date, um, you know, your birthdays, promotions—like everything is celebrated in a restaurant. Without restaurants, where do you go to memorialize these important, you know, events in your life? I don't see a world without them. So, if someone is worried if restaurants and dining out will disappear, I don't think that uh, we as a society will let that happen. Um, we will figure out how to get back, and we'll control. You know the medical side of this. Uh, I don't think the desire to go and be together. And I think this time has proven that restaurants are just are not just functional places to get sustained. You know, caloric sustenance. I don't think we're just about food. I think that's why restaurant design is so important because we have to create emotion. We have to create mood. We have to create uh, celebratory environments and places where people can experience uh, joyful moments. You know, food is. Like I said, you can get food from a grocery store, but that's really joyless. Uh, we, I mean, I think all of us are learning. Like cooking at home sucks. <laughs> you have to cl- clean up after yourself. It's messy. It's time consuming. And takeout is—it's compromised. It's not that good. Um, getting fresh food cooked in the moment and enjoying it right away. I mean, I'm—I haven't had good sushi. I haven't had good tempura. <laughs> <laughs> it's so sad <laughs> yeah, no, it's really awful and I know how good these things can be and without these convivial environments that restaurants offer us um, we're, you know, we're, we have to literally change as a society and I don't think that we're ready to do that yet so I think restaurants are still going to be there and they're going to be more desire um, I, th- I just think like after having something so important taken away from all of us we'll realize their importance and I think they will continue to thrive thank you both so much and thank you chef for being here and sharing your expertise my pleasure no expertise was shared today but thank you anyway
0: (laughs) love it listeners to learn more about sang's work visit chefsangyun.com. we'll post the link and keep an eye out for helms bakery it's very exciting okay it's that time of the week every week we share our weekly dose of good design are examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. So this week, I wanted to mention my favorite iPad app. I can't believe I haven't had this as a weekly dose yet, but it is the app that I use literally every second of every workday, and it's called Paper. And it's basically a sketch and note-taking app for the iPad, like turns your iPad into a digital canvas or in my case, a digital notebook. And of course I'm using the Apple Pencil with it. There are probably a million sketch apps for the iPad at this point uh, that use the Apple Pencil, but most are way too overpowered or feature heavy for me. Paper is super simple. It was created by a pair of ex-Microsoft folks. Uh, Back then they called their, their new company 53. Now they're part of WeTransfer. So in paper, there are just a few tools, a handful of tools, uh, a pencil, a pen, a marker, a paintbrush, an eraser to name a few of the main ones. There's also a very simple like color management system that lets you save your favorite color palettes. There's nothing extra to get in the way. So you literally open it up and just start writing or drawing. Uh, my favorite tool, they call it the diagram tool. I call it the smart pen. Uh, because you can literally draw perfect shapes and move them around. So if you want to draw a perfect circle and you're drawing like a diagram, you use a smart pen and draw as close as you can to a circle, and then snap, it becomes a perfect circle. It's like the best functionality ever. Um, then there's a paint roller. You can fill that circle up with color. Uh, there's scissors you can use to like crop little shapes out of things. It's just so great. Just the tools you need, just the backdrops you need paper and the iPad and the pencil have allowed me to ditch my paper notebook for about the last two years. So I haven't used a paper notebook in a while. I used to fill those paper notebooks up and never look at them again. They'd be like on the shelf. But now I can look back like two years of notes and like based on the awareness of where things are, like you can look at your notes as a little book and flip through it or you can look at it on a giant grid so I can go back and like actually find things and, and use those notes. So I love it. Uh, we'll post a link. Check it out and enjoy drawing.
1: Okay, Greg, you are up. All right. Yeah, so I mean <laughs> my object is also like kind of like a day-to-day uh you know that 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 little sidekick that you have pretty much with you every day uh is uh my mouse. Um and it's a Logitech MX Master and uh I believe they've even got like a a, a number a numeric with that now. Um not only is it it's, it's incredibly well designed. It's the most ergonomic mouse I've ever used. Um, just the, the shape of it, the size of it, the detail of it is surprising. It's, it's incredibly accurate. It's got, you know, you can, you can use it up on up to three different, um, uh, devices. Basically just like click, click of a button, which is great. Um, you know, just the placement of like the, like the thumb roll on it, like the all of the little buttons and whatnot are are kind of very well thought through, and the the pitch of it it just is is incredible. Um, it also is available in a few kind of subtle, attractive colors, uh, which is kind of nice to see. Um, but yeah, some of the, some of the detail on the, kind of the, the interior thumb side of it, um, where the material changes, um, you know, it's got this kind of arc, uh, a curve, which is quite or faceted, I guess you would say, which is quite interesting. So a lot of thought went into this little piece of equipment, you know, probably retail somewhere around $80 or so. So not the least expensive mouse uh, out there, but we ended up buying them for everybody on our staff so logitech uh, thumbs up
0: great yeah they're doing a lot of cool design stuff yeah. these days we'll definitely we'll, we'll post a link thanks so much greg this was a lot of fun and really enjoyed the conversation and i look forward to visiting a restaurant you've designed
1: yeah love to have you awesome
0: thank you That's our show for this week. I want to thank Greg Blyer and Chef Sang Yoon for joining us and thank you all for listening. We'll post links to some of the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. I also want to thank everyone again for their contribution to Design Museum Everywhere's latest magazine special issue. The Kickstarter campaign was an awesome success. If you missed the campaign and you're interested in learning about the intersection between design and policing, you can still purchase your copy of the special issue. Better yet, you can subscribe to Design Museum Magazine and receive the latest issue right to your doorstep each season. And you also get the digital edition that looks really great on your smartphone or your tablet. Check that all out on our website. You can always find us on social media. Design Museum is on Twitter. We're at design underscore museum. We're also on Instagram, at design museum everywhere. We're on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. We also have an awesome weekly e-newsletter that goes right to your inbox and keeps you in the know on everything that's coming up from the Design Museum. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amory Yates with production assistance from Ryan Flom and editing support by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for hanging out and we'll talk again next week.